0: The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. The Tasmanian Devil is a less-than-cuddly carnivorous marsupial with an international reputation, and that's thanks to Looney Tunes. They called the devil the Taz, which first appeared in cartoons in 1954 and was still on television well into the 90s. The devil's reputation has become very important to Tasmania because it attracts tourists from around the world. In 1941 the devils became officially protected by the government of Australia. Unfortunately that protection isn't protecting their health. Since the late 1990s the devil facial tumor disease has dramatically reduced their numbers and now threatens the survival of the species. In 2008 the devils were declared an endangered species, officially declared an endangered species. So in an effort to save them, the Australian government started to send Tasmanian Devils to zoos around the world as part of its Save the Tasmanian Devil program. Dr. Carolyn Hogg is a conservation biologist who has been working with threatened species for over 25 years. Hogg is the science lead for the National Threatened Species Initiative, a program generating genomic resources for Australia's threatened species, and she is also the co-lead of the Australasian Wildlife Genomics Group at the University of Sydney. For the past 12 years, Dr. Hogg has been working with the Save the Tasmanian Devil program, utilizing genomics as a vital tool to save this endangered species. I invited Dr. Hogg to join me for a conversation that matters about the role genomics is playing in an all-out effort to save the Tasmanian Devil. Carolyn, welcome.
1: Well, thank you for having me today.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. And, you know, as probably like so many people who have been influenced by you hear this Tasmanian Devil, and there's something that we're attracted to. Uh, when you look at them, you go, okay, you're not so cuddly, um, but. Um, I had no idea that they were endangered. How bad is it for them right now?
1: So um, the cancer was first, it's it's a cancer. Devil facial tumor disease is in fact an infectious cancer, which people find infectious su- cancer. It's an infectious cancer. So people find that really surprising because there's only fi- uh, sorry three uh, infectious cancers in vertebrates. So one is in dogs, um, but it doesn't kill dogs. It, it's, a, it's a a veneral um, sexually transmitted disease. So they get a tumor and they mate, and then it's passed on, and then it goes yeah. away in dogs. So devils have it in their face, Um, and interestingly, the third one is also in devils. So in 1996, uh, Christo Bars, who used to be a photographer for National Geographic, took a photograph of a devil with these really big like tumours on its face. And then, slowly but surely, ecologists in Tasmania started to notice that devil populations on the East Coast were um, getting smaller and declining. There didn't seem to be as many of them. And that's when we saw the disease start to sweep south and westwards. And now it covers pretty much most of the state of Tasmania. There's only a slightly disease-free area up in the, the northwest in a place called Wool North and, and the southwest of the state. And we, on the east coast, we've seen populations decrease by 95%. And across the whole state, we would say there's probably about an 80% decline in the species now.
0: So in my introduction I talked about the fact that there is this program to send Tasmanian devils to zoos around the world in an effort to help save them. Is that having any uh, beneficial impact?
1: Yeah, so I mean the, the Save the Tasmanian Devil program was the, the Australian and Tasmanian governments initiative. They started it in 2003. Um, and, and their first focus, primary focus, was to understand the disease. And in 2006, the zoos were like, you know, we're happy to start bringing in disease free devils and, and we'll have an insurance population while we're working out what's happening with the disease. So when the insurance population started, there was, uh, you know, about 100 devils in four zoos. They'd been in zoos for a long since the 1970s, they'd had devils in zoos. And they did a a large intake. So they went about 50 kilometers in front of the disease front and they just started catching devils uh, that were disease free and bringing them into captivity. And so then they expanded the program to uh, zoos in Australia. And when I came on board in 2010, I made a map of where all these animals had come from. And they all come from a very small area on the west coast of Tasmania. And that gave me concerns because generally animals from the same area can potentially be related to one another. And that's I was, and I was in conservation management back then. I didn't work at the university, and so I went to Kathy Bellov, who I co lead the group with, at the University of Sydney. And I said, Oh, I need genetics. Genetics this is this great thing everyone keeps talking about. You know, surely this can solve my problem. And she's like, Sure, we can answer that. And then what we came to realise is that was seven years later. We actually solved that problem. Um, And the reason is, is because devils have actually been through these uh, population declines over about 20,000 years. They've had these significant population crashes and we can see that genomic signature. And what that means now is devils have very low genetic diversity. And they have very low genetic diversity, particularly at their immune genes. And that's one of the reasons why we think the disease is spreading through them so quickly. And in 2011, when we tried to do the genetics of the devils in the insurance population, we just didn't have the technology. We didn't have the power of of the technology we have now to answer that question. So we had to try all sorts of different things and it really has been a journey of um, pushing the technological boundaries in the genomic space and then trying to work out new algorithms to put it all into how we manage the the population long term.
0: i got to get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you so that's where genomics is helping you to understand the population that is in these zoos and are you then able to say well this devil can't mate with that devil because you're too closely related yeah Well, is that one of the elements that that you're benefiting from
1: that's definitely one of the elements so when we first looked at the founders um you know we managed to bring animals in from from the wild and they put the males in one location and the females in another location for quarantine and then they, they picked them up and they moved them to the zoos and there were a couple of instances where we moved brothers and sisters together So we, that, and they did mate and they produced offspring so of course that sent inbreeding through the roof and once we got the genetic data we were able to rectify that situation and, and what we do now is we've genetically sampled across about 31 locations across the range so we know what's happening with genetics in the wild We've uh, genetically tested both the captive population in the zoos themselves, but we also have devils on an island, a disease-free island, and also on a peninsula. So we know what's happening there. And now we're trialing um, some trial releases with the devil program uh, in collaboration with them about whether or not can we take devils from the island that are genetically mixed and release them to mainland Tasmania? So they're kind of on this workflow where they come out of the wild, they went into captivity, they breed and live in captivity, their offspring go to the island, they breed there on the island, then the offspring go to, um, back to the mainland.
0: Are they not at risk when they go back to the mainland if there is the population that has the facial tumor yep. disease and it is contagious?
1: Yes, so they are. They, and they, so, but what we've been doing is, we've. We, devils are genetically structured, they're, they're different across the state. And what we're trying to see is if we mix two genetically different populations, can we make them have more diversity at their immune region? So we can't make them resistant to the disease. what we can do is we can give them the ability to be resilient towards all the other things that come their way so parasites and bacteria and viruses and so as you can imagine if their immune system is fighting the cancer and parasites and bacteria and it's just it's too much And so if we can make them be more resilient to all the other things, does that then give them a a better chance of being able to live with the disease for longer? Because at the moment, if they get the disease at one, they generally are dead by two or three. So they they normally live when they're healthy for five or six years. They start breeding at the age two. Now they're breeding at age one and, and they're gone by the time they're three. So it's really reduced their lifespan. And and one of the things we've come to realize is if we can help devils live long enough to live for two breeding seasons rather than one, will populations start to recover a little bit, and then you'll get natural mutation processes, hopefully.
0: So what else has the role of genomics to help you to understand how the devils now find themselves being, well, in the line of fire of this tumor uh, that is killing them? Yeah. Do d- Does it help you identify the source and what was happening genetically within the, the animals uh, to say, okay, this is now going to manifest itself in their bodies?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I gave a, the, the Don Rick's distinguished keynote address last night for, mm-hmm. for Genome BC and um, you know, if I had to talk about everything we knew about genetics and devils, the talk would be about three hours long. Oh, we know so much <laughs> information about devils. So in, in 2012, uh, a woman at Cambridge University, Liz Murchison actually sequenced the devil genome, but she also sequenced the tumor genome.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And, and with that, we, we started to get a very uh, keen understanding of what was going on. And so um, what happens is, the the disease itself arose from a nerve cell in a female devil. And everyone's like, how are you able to work that out? Right. (laughs) Well, it's because the tumor is clonal. So it's the same in all the individuals. It it changes slightly now, so it mutates, but it's essentially a clonal cancer. And what that means is it's all got an X chromosome, so it must have come from a female individual. And Uh. it's a Schwann cell carcinoma, which is a nerve cell in the face. So that's how we think it formed. Now why it came about, we have no idea. Something happened that caused this mutation event in this one individual, cancer grew, and then they give it to another another individual. And What happens is when devils mate, they bite each other around the faces. Um, And what we've seen over the years is that breeding season is in February, March, April, and then by October, September, we see disease go up in a population and and a team at University of Tasmania who work on the ecology side of things. This is a massive program. There's so many universities, there's like 10 universities involved, plus the government agencies. And Rodrigo found that, that actually uh, the devils are biting each other in mating season, and that's when they're transmitting the cancer.
0: So then they open the skin and then it's transmitted yeah, yeah. through then, a saliva or- <coughs> Yeah, it's or, an yeah. infection. Uh-huh. So it's
1: an infectious body, it just travels in, in body fluid. So.
0: And you can't stop them from doing that?
1: No, no. So, you know, <laughs> Kathy, who I work with, often says, you know, that maybe the solution to devils is if we make them angels rather than devils, the ones that, they, will they stop biting each other. <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen.
0: No because it's, you know, part of their genetic
1: yeah, makeup. Uh,
0: makeup. And so,
1: you know, from that from that um, moment, you know, Liz has spent years studying the tumor. Our research group has spent years investigating the devil's immune system and their relationship to the tumor. There's a team at the Menzies Medical Re- Research Institute that are investigating how to make a vaccine. Um, but the, the tumor does interesting things. So in, in your immune system, you have what we call MHC genes. And, and these are genes that all jawed vertebrates have. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it's what we call antigen presenting genes, which sounds very complicated, but essentially when you are going for a, a organ transplant, you know how they always talk about finding a donor match? Yes. What they're doing is they're matching the MHC genes. So they try and find a donor that has very, very similar MHC to you, so when they do the organ transplant, your body doesn't reject it. Uh-huh. So that's what MHC does. MHC recognizes foreign bodies, and it mounts, you know, kickstarts the immune system and makes a, an immune response. DFTD downregulates regulates its um, MHC receptors on the outside of the cell, so the devil's immune system can't see it
0: can't which even see it.
1: Can't see it. Which is, is phenomenal. And so then the cancer infects and the devil's just not amounting an immune response until it's too late.
0: This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Well, and did you not earlier say that the immune system of the devils is like, Critically low. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what does genomics help us understand about, like, why it's so critically low? Is it because of the the nature of the inbreeding of the species in Tasmania, yeah. or are there other factors? No,
1: we we suspect it's happened um, with these massive population crashes. So you know, we've seen there's a f- been a few, and and it's just they've ended up with no diversity at these genes. That's just how it occurs. When you have a population crash, you end up with inbreeding, and even though the population grows back to a large site, Size again, you, you end up what we what we call a run of homozygosity in the genome, which is just essentially no diversity in that section of the genome. And lots of species have runs of homozygosity, um, but it's when the runs of homozygosity occur at a critical gene family, like the immune genes, that you, you start to have right. problems. Um, and you know, devils are not the only species that suffer from disease. That I, we work on, we work on koalas and chlamydia, orange-bellied parrots and beak and feather disease, and it's it's a similar story across those species where there's this low diversity at at these immune regions.
0: Do you think you can win this uh, battle on behalf of the Tasmanian devils?
1: Well I hope so because that's what gets me out of bed in the morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay but what is it that worries you right now as you sit there and you start to think about the challenge ahead of you because you're you're dealing with a population who looks at you as a threat uh, and you've got to work with them Mm. to try and help them survive. So what is it that Causes you the greatest concern right now?
1: I think for me the, the greatest concern is the system is changing um, and devils, you know, we see we're seeing changes in the system, natural occurring changes, which you would expect with a disease that, that the devils hopefully will start to co-evolve with the disease. The problem with devils is they've got low diversity to start with. They now have this disease which has knocked populations really low, and they live in a fragmented landscape because the landscape's been fragmented by farming and forestry and all the other things which are common anywhere in the world Um, and so now you've got these populations that are isolated with limited gene flow and and the disease won't make a species go extinct but it'll push it to the edge and then all the other threatening processes will take it out and that's the concern so one of the reasons we're releasing devils back to wild sites is to see whether or not if we give them a little bit of a boost in genetic gene flow does that help that population Um, become a little bit more resilient so they can learn to adapt to the disease themselves. And obviously, I mean, we we have no idea whether or not it's going to work. But what what we've seen with some of the early trial data is that um, we can introduce new genetic variants at the immune genes, and that's taken up because they interbreed. Um, And then it's maintained across subsequent generations, which is really important. Like you can always increase diversity when you put new animals in, but it's whether or not that diversity stays for a period of time.
0: Pre-genomic sequencing, would you have been able to choose the right devils to put back into that natural population?
1: We just make random guesses. We used (laughs) to just like, you know, choose a few animals and put them... I mean, look what we did in the early days. We brought devils in from the wild and we put brothers and sisters together because we didn't know who was related to whom. And so genomics has really changed the way conservation managers can manage captive breeding. Um, and translocations and and really make informed and smarter decisions about you know where you should be moving animals, what populations have what kind of resilience for the threatening processes you know different species of different threatening processes but so one of the the large projects we're now doing is seeing whether or not we can start to understand what genes are potentially involved in heat tolerance in relation to climate change uh, in koalas because they've got a very large range. So it, it's you know, genomics is a really powerful tool, and we've only really scratched the surface. You think about human medicine mm-hmm. in the 1980s and 1990s, and they, it took 13 years to do the human genome, and they published it in 2003. And you think about human medicine today. So how much do we know about cancer and hereditary diseases? And precision medicine is becoming really common. All of that is because we had the human genome. So now imagine if we had that genomic resource for all life on Earth, Yes, what we could do.
0: Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Yes, what what we could do, but I can't help but think about with (coughs) the Tasmanian devil, we now know what the genetic challenges are. Is it right for us to say, well, we can help work with your genome to uh, change your genetic makeup. Uh, Do we have the right to do that? Is it possible?
1: Uh, Well, here's a question for you. Do we have the right to do that? Do we have the right to cut down the landscape? do we have the right to introduce invasive species? Do we have the right to like change the climate? I mean, how far are you willing to go? So people yeah. are like, well, aren't you interfering in the natural process? And I would argue that humanity has been interfering in the natural process for hundreds of years.
0: Longer than that.
1: Yeah, thousands <laughs> of years. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, it's a very slippery slope of where you say you start and stop. And I have people question, like you asked the question, but you're releasing disease-free animals into a disease population. But that's the disease is the threatening process for this species. But other species that we translocate and release, the threatening process is feral cats if they're a bird. Yeah. Or it's, you know, roadkill if they're something else. So it's it's interesting to me that people are comfortable releasing animals to get hit by cars and eaten by feral cats, but not comfortable if they get a disease. And I say to those people, you don't get to choose your threatening process that you're comfortable with. You either are comfortable with trying to do an intervention to maintain the species in the landscape longer term. So your grandchildren mm-hmm. get to see the bush of your childhood because at the moment it doesn't exist. We've destroyed it. Mm-hmm. And, and really it's about how do we, use, I mean, we've very got these huge brains. We develop all the stuff. We put man on the moon and a rover on Mars. <laughs> You know,
0: Spaceships <laughs> that have gone and left our solar system. Exactly. Yep. <laughs>
1: you know, surely we can use all that brain power and technology to just live a little bit better and more sustainably on the planet than we've actually got.
0: I agree with you. So then let me come back to the question, is it possible that we can uh, work with the genome of the Tasmanian devil to boost their uh, immune system? Mm. To, uh, and And are, where are you at in that process?
1: So, um, that's what we're doing. We're doing it naturally by releasing devils and letting them breed themselves. A lot of people ask if we can manipulate the genome in the lab and then clone them and do all this. My, y- we can do the manipulation and you can insert, there's a technology now to insert gene variation, whatever. Right. The problem is, is how do you then get it out of the Petri dish into an animal? Because What's the delivery
0: them? system, yes. What is
1: the delivery system? <laughs> um, and, and assisted reproductive technology has been around for years in humans with IVF, mm-hmm. and we use it in the cattle agriculture with cattle and sheep and a whole suite of other species. But what most people don't realise is that ART needs to like be worked out for every individual species. That just because it works in a cow doesn't mean it's going to work in a giraffe, and they're both ungulates. And and it's really a complex system. So do we invest? time and effort and resources into doing it in a lab and working all that out, or do we just maintain them in the landscape and use natural processes where we can bring them in, let them breed themselves, and put them back out by genetically testing them? So (laughs) you know we don't have to do all that work in the lab because they still exist in the landscape. Um, Where the lab techniques come to the fore is where one of the the species I work on is an orange-bellied parrot. It's a tiny little 40-gram parrot. One population left in the wild. We got down to two females in the wild and we have animals in captivity but they've got the same thing they've got issues around disease and low genetic diversity where do we get the diversity from for that species and so we we looked at whether do we breed it with another species to try introduce genetic diversity or is there a way we can go to museum specimens to find historical diversity and then we CRISPR edited back in, but then we've got to try to figure out how to put it back in the eggs to get the eggs to hatch to make a bird. It's it's super complicated once you get to that point.
0: But isn't it uh, thrilling and exciting that we're on the cusp of being able to do this, and especially when it comes to endangered species, that we can play a positive role in helping them get through this very challenging time in their history.
1: Yeah, I think it I think it's a really exciting time, but I also get really concerned that um People will disbelieve, well, you know, we've got this technology and we can always save them and bring them back. if we. And, and so they won't change the practices which is driving the extinction process.
0: Yeah, I know. And we <laughs> bought a bill of goods on what we, we can do with yeah, genomics. Like, y- y- we were supposed to have cured all diseases now uh, since sequencing the human genome.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we're
0: barely seeing it being introduced to human, into human health.
1: Yeah, and, 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 you know, human health, for every dollar that human health gets invested in it, conservation and all other ecology gets about four cents yeah so it's disproportionately um produced and you know we saw that in australia we had the mega fires of 2019 2020 they were catastrophic they took out huge parts of our landscape and our ecosystem and it was devastating for all of those of us who work in conservation in australia um, but we really felt like we had an opportunity because it galvanised the community, it galvanised the government agencies. And this was our opportunity to really make a difference. And yeah. then the pandemic hit. And now everyone only wants to talk about the pandemic and what's happened to humans and, and what happened with the fires and, wh- and how it devastated our environment has just kind of been forgotten. But the consequences of that haven't gone away because we focused on the pandemic. They're still there. Yes. Yeah. But the funding to do all that work has gone away. Because it went to the
0: pandemic. Well, let's hope that we can raise your profile and uh, draw more attention to it. Because I believe that you know we live in a world of diversity. That world came to be for a reason, and it's our responsibility to be, you know, proper guests on this planet along with every other creature.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, the climate change guys have done an amazing job at raising awareness about climate change and I, I don't think there's anyone around now who <laughs> <laughs> are some, but most people and large proportion of the global population realise it's here. Like, you know, fires all through BC and California and Australia and now Australia's flooding. I just saw on the news before we started today that's no more floods in Australia because all the ninja started again for us. Um, and so but what most people don't realize is the biodiversity crisis which is the other side of the climate change coin is massive and what will take us out first is actually the loss of biodiversity because Mm -hmm. our food security is dependent on diversity in the system our human health is dependent on the diversity in the system because that's where we get our medicines from it'll help us with climate change because everyone keeps trying to develop something that's going to scrub carbon from the atmosphere it's called a tree does it? Naturally. Any, anything and, that grows. <laughs> and in an amazing way. Yeah. And so biodiversity is actually all life on Earth. Everything. Yeah. Of which we are one species of the 13 million species that live here. Yes. So, and that's, that's a bit of a startling statistic for most people. And it's like, you know, for some reason, humans like to talk about ourselves a lot. Um, and we like to think we're separate from the natural world, but we're not.
0: No. byproducts of it. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing this and I wish you great success in your efforts to save the Tasmanian devil and other uh, species that are at risk. Okay,
1: great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. So stay there for just one second. I gotta record three uh, throws to commercial breaks. It goes like this.